there are some people that make their work just another thing they have to do. And there are those that make their work something that they want to do. Welcome to Working on Purpose with your host, Elise Cortez. In our program, we provide guidance and inspiration from those people who have found deeper meaning and personal connection to their work life. It's beyond 9 to 5. It's Working on Purpose. Now, here is your host, Elise Cortez. Welcome back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for tuning in again this week. I'm your host, Elise Cortez, joining you from Dallas, Texas, which is home base for me. This program is all about helping people more meaningfully and productively connect with their work and equipping organizations to do the same for their employees. It was originally inspired by the meaning work research I've been doing over the last 15 years and now complements the work that I do at Insignium, a global management consulting firm. I'll get to the program in just a second, but let me thank my media partner and sponsor, Jobbing.com. They are leading locally focused job board in the nation, and they're dedicated to helping employers find quality talent in their own backyard and giving job seekers control over their search so they can find work close to home. Thank you, Jobbing.com. With us last week was Christine Cassidy of Boer Consultants, and we were talking about the importance of professionals being comfortable and adept at public speaking, business writing in their everyday emails, and also, of course, key business documents, and really strong key interpersonal skills. So things like conflict resolution, emotional intelligence, all those basic things that really comprise a busy executive today is what, what we focused on. With us this week is Christopher Scott. I happened to read about this remarkable man in the Dallas Morning News about a year ago, had him on the show last January. Christopher has the dubious distinction of having spent 13 years in prison for a murder he did not commit, having landed there as a result of faulty eyewitness identification. He was exonerated in 2009, and shortly after his release, Christopher founded the House of Renewed Hope, which is a nonprofit organization that investigates other wrongful conviction cases. His document documentary called True Conviction, which is a narrative movie based on his life story and the work he does at the House of Renewed Hope, was released in April of this year. Christopher joins us today from Dallas, Texas. He's with me today on the air, and we'll be talking about what he's actually done, well, actually how he got himself into prison and what he's doing through the work he's doing today. Looking forward to this conversation. Christopher, welcome back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for having me again. I'm honored. <laughs> I I was so glad to be able to find you again, and when we, we we reconnected on LinkedIn, grabbed some lunch, and you told me about the work that you'd been doing. I thought I gotta have you back. I gotta share you with my listeners again. So thanks for being willing mm-hmm. to come back. Um, now, some of our listeners who are listening today may have already heard that you speak with me before and heard your story, but for those who haven't. Let's hear that story in kind of in a condensed version. You went to prison and spent 13 years for a murder you didn't commit. It started back mm-hmm. in 1997, I think, and you had two small children at the time. What happened that got you into prison? Well, basically, it was kind of like at the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, leaving the house, I was going to talk to a friend. And four hours prior, a murder was committed, a uh, capital murder at that. Guys went in to rob a dope a drug dealer, and they end up killing him, which made a capital murder. And I drove right into the scene, and they was looking for two African-American men. And the first two African-American men they saw, they arrested us, uh, took us downtown. Um, the lady walked up to me and said, I was the one that killed her husband. And next thing you know, I was going to court for uh, going to trial for capital murder. Oh, you know, of course, I, I know your story well, and I've seen some of the other other documentaries that, that have been done on you and your and, and, and what happened and, and know this fairly well in detail. But of course, I didn't live it for 13 years. Um, mm-hmm. it, it was your brother, wasn't it, who came into the knowledge of the man who actually confessed to the murder that you were serving time for? Is that right? 
Yeah, it was kind of strange because my brother had wrote me a letter. I think I was in prison maybe a couple of years. And he wrote me and he said, man, you know, it's a guy on the unit with me named uh, Lonzo Hardy. I'm like, yeah, okay. He said, man, one day Lonzo Hardy was in a barbershop because my brother works in a barbershop. And he was talking about a murder case that he got away with. And he started going into detail about the case, about how they went into the house, killed the guy, robbed him for some drugs, killed him, and left, and two other guys got charged for it. And it sounded so familiar to my brother. To With my case, my brother started asking questions like, man, what's the guy's name? He gave him my name, and then he just really gave my brother a background on me because he knew me. Uh, because I dated a girl from their neighborhood, and you know I had two kids, where I lived at, what kind of car I drove, where I worked at, and everything. And yeah, my brother told him like, "Hey, you know, that's my little brother you're talking about. So I would like for you to uh, file an affidavit if you don't mind, to try to help get him free." Oh, I, every time I hear this, Christopher, it just takes me to such a place. But uh, and I know that you say it with such grace today, all all about your your history and your experience. Um. I, I guess I want to get in next to the actual documentary that, that came out in April, because maybe some of the things that I want you to talk about will come out when you share that. But um, mm-hmm. the documentary is called True Conviction, and, and, and I know mm-hmm. I, it's, it was picked up by the Tribeca Film Institute. I'd love to hear how that project all started, and what did it take to complete it first? And then I want to get into some of the details in it. Well, basically how it got started, we usually have a group meeting with all exonerees in Dallas, in Dallas Texas. And we meet at a church, and one day, Michael May, guy works for the Texas Observer, he came in and just wanted to see how all the men that were wrong for conviction meet and the stories we tell with each other and how we're going to go through and do some lobbying and deal with legislation. And they was and, and the conversation came about what we, what were we are trying to do with our lives about getting them back on track again. And I told him, I said, man, my thing is I've been really into trying to help other people get out of prison for crime they didn't commit. So I'm starting this, my own investigation thing that I have going on, which will be called House Renewed Hope. And the people that come on with my organization, that's what we're going to do. And he was like, hmm, this sounds kind of interesting. Would you, you know, elaborate a little more for me? And I told him about the format I was going to have for it. And then he made mention, he was like, hey, I think this would be something good to tell this documentary that works at Stanford. He's over the documentary program at Stanford, which is Jamie Mercer. And he said, I think Jamie Mercer would love to, you know, talk to you about doing a documentary. I said, okay, well, you know, put me in contact with him and let's talk. And, and, you know, Michael May went into more discussion about, you know, how I was doing while I was out and what I had to do to maintain my sanity in prison. And he was like, man, you got a one hell of a story, man. You have a great story and you know how to tell your story well. So I think you'll be the best fit for this documentary. And that's how it all came about. And how much time did it take from that start of that conversation then, Christopher, to it actually being released? Uh, right at five years. Yeah. Wow. Five, wow. five long years with the cameras in your face all the time. Yeah. You know, I just, it, it seemed like it was going to be a never ending story because every time we felt like we was at the end of it, something else new 
came about, we had a break in the case or something else came came about about that was going to make the film just that much stronger and more impactful. And we just kept adding more things onto it to make it more impactful for everybody to see. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, um, I've had the, the, the privilege of, of seeing this with you, but for the benefit of our listeners, what's basically in this, this film? Well, it's, it's about three guys that, that shows you how hard it is to get their life back together again after being wrongfully convicted. And with my life, it has me dealing with my grandson, being that my son is incarcerated, and now I have to pick up the pieces of what he left behind because the crazy part about that, my son went to prison at the same age I went to prison. I was 27. Mm-hmm. Now my son is 27 in prison. My my son there was four years old when he went when I went to prison. Now his son is four years old, so it's like it's it's like a in an enigma that all of it played out all around again. I go to prison at twenty seven. He do the same. His kid the same age he was when I went to prison. So it's so scary, but it shows you just how hard the work is for us to get our life back together again. Stephen Phillips got all of this money and turned to drugs because he never had this kind of money a day in his life, and he got hooked up with the wrong people. And it just showed you how you can have so much money and don't cherish it, and you can you can blow it at all the time. Johnny Lindsay, it was about enjoying life with him. He got married. Uh, he just wanted to get on, you know, play with his toys, which he loved music. So he did with the piano. Uh, he left meditating. He he just like enjoying life, and you're gonna see that whole facet of our life inside that documentary. Well, I tell you what, I can't wait for our listeners to see it. It's it's it is truly amazing, of course, and re- very very powerful, and I think f- incredibly enlightening for people who one are not re- very familiar with the with the justice system or haven't really had any brushes with it. Um, I I would I would I would use one word, um, not not above all, but as many, and that is sobering. It's a very sobering documentary, Christopher. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah, you're welcome. I'm so glad to know you and and to be part of a sw- one small part of what you're trying to do here because I think it's really important. Um, and and I want to I want to showcase something for our listeners that I found incredibly powerful in another documentary that you that you did called Freedom Fighters, Christopher. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that stood out for me in that documentary is it showcases you interviewing one of the one of the men who was actually responsible for the murder that you served time for and who ultimately mm-hmm. confessed to the crime. Um, mm-hmm. Would you please tell us, help us understand, what was it like to look eyeball to eyeball and meet the man that you served time for? Uh, it was heart wrenching. It, it was it was very. It was a super intense interview. I mean, you know, if we had an, it was so thick that you can cut the tension with a knife. It was so much tension, and just to see him in the position he was in that this was one person that had power over my life because he was the one was able to give my freedom back to me. And you're looking at this guy that had that much power over your life. And the only thing I wanted to ask him, why did it take you so long to confess to the crime? 
And he never could give me a straight answer or he never apologized for it. It was always about him. You know, it just showed me that, you know, he was a bigger coward than I thought he was. You know what I mean? Because in the eyes of the law, you do the crime, you must do the time. Don't do a crime and expect somebody else to do the time for you. But, you know, everybody was like, hey, you should have popped him or socked him or whatever the case may be. That was, it, that, that's not why I went there. I went there for some type of closure because this was going to hang over my head for so long and like forever. So it was a must that me and that guy had that conversation to get that conversation out of the way. So if we ever do run into each other in the street again, it's settled. We, we, we got clarity on it. It's cleared up so we don't have to. You know, look over our shoulders and see if anybody thinking about doing anything to each other, whatever the case may be, you know, is buried. So, Christopher, I know because you and I've had the I've had the privilege of sitting with you and chatting with you face to face a couple of times. Um, one of the things that you told me about your past and your history that stands out to me that makes me wonder if this is part of how you were able to get through that experience with such grace Um and remind me, I'm sure I don't have the, the the description quite right, but you were told a long time ago in your life that something pretty significant was going to happen to you, and but yeah, you were going to have to go through an awful lot to be able to to weather it. Something along mm-hmm. those lines. In other mm-hmm. words, it was almost to me like a prophecy. Yeah, Could you it, it was. Say a little bit about funny. that experience. It was. It was kind of funny when when it happened because I was a kid, and like I say, my parents. And relatives are real religious people, and they have prayer meetings at, at each other's house. And one day, the head pastor saw me running through the house, and he stopped me and said, Son, I need to pray for you. Me being a little kid, I'm like, What do you want to pray for me for? And he told me, Say, You're going to you know, go through something so terrible and so painful that the only thing going to get you out of this situation is the faith you have in God. So being a little kid, I know about church, but I don't know about church. So he prayed for me, and I kept praying praying or whatever with my cousin. And like 15 years later, his son told me the exact same thing when we was getting ready for my dad's funeral. I walked through the house, and he stopped me, and he wanted to pray for me. And he told me the same thing. He said, I just got a feeling you're going to go through something so trying and so tough that the only thing going to get you out of this situation is the faith you have in God. And he told me, I want to see you at church this weekend. Sunday, I want to see you at church. And I told him, okay. And I didn't go to church or whatever. Two weeks later, I was in jail for a capital murder case. Oh, my gosh, Christopher. So I've never forgotten that story. I've never forgotten that story. And I wonder... Where and what, or how did you prepare for that conversation so that you could have that grace? Is that part of it, or well, I know that you said you wanted closure, so you came at it from a very, very healthy motive. But still, yeah, it was, mm-hmm. was that okay. experience that? Yeah, was that? Um, what I want to understand is part of what was playing for you to have that kind of a prophecy. Did that help you get through that experience? Well, yeah, well, I think it did because you know, being said that I, it was. Like, no DNA in my case. This guy didn't have to come forward and confess to this crime, but something was heavy on his heart to do it, and he came forward and confessed to it. So I was like, I got to just 
keep on this path to having, you know, not being bitter, not being angry of this situation, just embrace it as it came. It was a source of a miracle that I got out of prison. So mm-hmm. I'm going to embrace, you know, God's word, and, and I'm going to do the right thing by him because I made him a promise. If he let me out, I would do everything in my power to free as many people that I could. And me having that kind of faith in him, it led me just to do the right thing and, like, don't have no worries about what happened and just keep moving on and keep pushing on because it's more people still in prison that should be, you know, exonerated. So long as I'm mad and angry and bitter, there's no way I'm going to be able to accomplish me trying to help innocent people get out of prison. Mm-hmm. And I remember, speaking of that very important point, Christopher, one of the things that I remember distinctly about the conversation you had with him was, um, for those people that are going to go out and watch this documentary themselves, is he said, I never, when you ask him why, did, why didn't he come forward, he said, I never believed that, uh-oh, my, my, my feeder's going to restart here, I think, just a second here. Um, I might lose you. But anyway, he said, I never believed that um, they would take, they would convict you because they have, there was no evidence yeah, when he told me that, it kind of threw me for a loop because I felt the same way that he felt. So the whole thing is, if they have, they don't have no murder weapon, they don't have no fingerprints, they don't have no positive, they don't have nothing to convict y'all. And he was like, we got rid of the murder weapon. So it was not linking y'all to the crime. And I don't understand how, to, how they could even attempt to convict y'all for something that we know y'all didn't, didn't do, and there couldn't be no evidence to point toward you all. And he said that's why he didn't come forward, because he just didn't see that the justice system could fail us dead terrible about not having no evidence to convict somebody. It's time for a break. I'm your host, Elise Cortez. We've been on the air with Christopher Scott, who spent 13 years in prison for a murder he did not commit, having landed there as a result of faulty eyewitness identification. He was exonerated in 2009 based on another man's detailed confession. After his release, Christopher founded the House of Renewed Hope, which is a nonprofit organization which is focused on investigating the other wrongful conviction cases. We've been talking a bit about how he got into prison and the beginnings of really his organization and how it came to be. After the break, we'll hear some of the, about some of the cases he's working on. Stay with us. Find out what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. Elise Cortez is a speaker and engagement and development catalyst. She designs and delivers professional development, leadership, and engagement workshops and can bring her expertise to your organization. She will help ignite meaningful development within your workforce that will increase employee engagement, performance, and retention. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at www.elisecortez.com. She would welcome the opportunity to help get your employees working on purpose. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Find out what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Thank you. 
This is Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez. To reach our program today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us and welcome back to Working on Purpose. If you're just joining us, my guest is Christopher Scott, who spent 13 years in prison for a murder he did not commit. He has since founded House of Renewed Hope, which is a nonprofit organization, the goal of which is to investigate other wrongful conviction cases. He is advocating for reforming the Texas criminal justice system and is also involved in two movie projects, one called The True Conviction Documentary, which is a narrative movie based on his life story and the story of the House of Renewed Hope's work. He joins us today from Dallas, Texas. I'm your host, Elise Cortez. Okay, so Christopher, in that last segment, we were talking a bit about how you really got into prison, what that was like a little bit there, and then just starting to queue up the work that you're doing through the House of Renewed Hope. So first, one thing that I want to talk about is the actual name of your organization, House of Renewed Hope. One of the things that I got from watching your your documentary was the importance of hope, having hope when you're in prison. Will you say more about that? Well, a lot of times being in prison, that's all you have is hope. And it's a true fact, you got to keep hope alive. And a lot of times when that's all you have, you can hope and wish for a whole bunch of things, but nine times out of ten, people in prison is only hoping and wishing for one thing, and that's freedom. So hope is always bringing about, you know, people wanting their freedom and freedom to live and freedom to have their life back again. So that's pretty much how the hope came into, you know, the picture of just got to have hope and see that, you know, things could you know, come true for you if you just have that kind of hope that moves mountains. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and one of the things I remember from one of our first conversations and probably even the last radio show to get, that we did together is you you mentioned that the House of Renewed Hope actually began when you were in prison and you began to notice that several of the men you were serving time with indicated that they were not guilty and that when you look around, mm-hmm. when you looked around, they looked a lot like you or each other. And you began mm-hmm. to hold meetings with these men, and and then you were you were the first one to become freed. So tell mm-hmm. us a little about the work that you did there in the beginning to get this started. You were going down to Austin, meeting with state representatives, and then just actually getting going with the House of Renewed Hope. Tell us about the beginnings. Yeah, the beginning was like I said, I was in prison, and just sitting in the prison day room, you probably had thirty, forty, maybe fifty people at one time in a day room. And you keep hearing the same stories like, man, you know, I got screwed over in court. What you mean? And the thing was, I didn't commit this crime. What you mean you didn't commit the crime? Man, they got me locked up for something I didn't do. And then when you say the same thing, like, yeah, man, I'm here for the same reason. And then it seemed like everybody just started coming out the crevices and the cracks. Like, yeah, man, I'm I'm in the same position. I'm in the same position. And you like, I'm hearing this just a little bit too regular. So you was like, it has to be something that has to be done about this. It, it just don't make no sense when you see people of your same color, of your same, you know, kind of, you know, your same kind of beard, your, your same kind of hair complexion or whatever the case may be. And it's like all of us fit the same description. Black guy, medium height, medium weight with a low haircut. And I'm like, how many people are you describing when you describe that? And when I seen that, I said, man, something got to be done. So I started talking to the guys, trying to come up with a solution while I was in prison. 
in a dang wood, like, man, we got to deal with the legislation. If we don't get it in law, then it's not going to be anything. It's just words just going to fall on deaf ears. So I made the pledge. I said, well, the first person get out, you know, start, you know, going to lobby and going to Austin, talk to the state representatives, state senators, and see what we can get done. And it was crazy. I was end up being the first person to get out, but a lot of people thought I was just wasn't going to do what I said I was going to do. And I was like, yeah, man, when I get out, I'm going to try to make a change. I'm going to try to bring about a difference in the criminal justice reform system. They were like, yeah, okay, we didn't hear it there before. So when I got out, in the way I got out with no DNA and, and a confession, they was already happy about that. They were like, man, we so proud that you got out because now that set a precedent, to a precedent of people can get out without no DNA. So, you know, you just set a standard. And then the next thing I knew is other exonerees was already going to Austin. You know, some of the groundwork was already, you know, put down for me. So I just followed, followed their lead. And then I was like, hey, it's more things that I want to do. So now it's time for me to be a leader. And, you know, I just stepped up and started going to Austin a whole lot and lobbying a whole lot. And we got several bills, you know, changed and, and, Put in, put on paper, and put in language that you know can help our criminal reform system and things of that nature. You know, I'm proud to be a part of the people that made that happen. Can you give us an example of, of one of the bills that you got changed? Well, it was called a double blind standard. Double blind standard meaning this: the cop that arrested you, he can't be in the interrogation room, or he can't be in there when you're in a picture lineup. And the best thing about that is because things can all easily be manipulated when you had a arresting officer in the same room with the person that's saying you don't want to committed this crime because things can be coerced to this person. So we was like, that's when a whole lot of the problems come when the same cop is able to be in, in interrogation with you and be in the, the lineup with you. So if we can get him out the picture, then everything should be pretty smooth that, you know, other people is looking into the case just besides the one that, you know, was first on the scene or the one that took you to jail. So once we did that, that was a big score for us. And then another one that got passed was the show-up lineup, which happened to me when a cop walked and laid up to me and said, this is the guy that killed your husband. She said, yes, that was considered a show-up. Now, they can't do that anymore. Do they practice it? Maybe so, maybe not. But that was one thing that another bill we got passed to show up line up. So it was all dealing with identification because that's one of the key factors in wrongful, convi- wrongful conviction, misidentification. So everything had to do with pretty much identifying the person. That is phenomenal, Christopher. I didn't know that you were, were part of changing these bills. That is fantastic. I knew that you were out working on changing legislation, but I didn't realize you'd actually done what you've done so far. That's fantastic. Great. And I know you have much more work that you want to do, and I want to get to that as well. Um, But let's talk a bit more about the House of Renewed Hope. Um, One of the things I want to call out to my listeners is when I read about you in the Dallas Morning News more than a year ago, I think it was like December of 2015 or something like that when I read about you. But my thought was, boy, you know, my radio show is called Working on Purpose. And I thought, boy, if this man isn't working on purpose, I don't know who is. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. you really are working on purpose here to help free people who are wrongfully con- convicted. Um, 
And you had mentioned when I when I brought you on the air today that you had a, a break in one of the cases you're working on. So maybe that's a place to start today. Can you tell us a bit about the case, whatever you are able to share with us, about the case that you're working on, and what was the break that you got? Well, basically, it was a, I've been working on this case for almost two years now. And it was a rape, you know, a rape case where a, a guy, you know, um, claimed that his cousins raped him. And... The guy was um, kind of a little slow or whatever the case may be, couldn't speak well, and with a pretty much low IQ. But he said he wasn't getting a lot of attention that the other kids was getting or whatever, and he was kind of, he was a bad actor because he was, like, taken from his grandmom and things of that nature and taken from her, stealing out of purse or whatever the case may be, and... One of the cousins got out of jail and went over there and kind of snatched him up. And the collar was like, hey, man, you know, you can't be treating our granny like that because this lady letting you stay here and taking care of you, cooking for you, watching for you, and you doing it like that. So he said that was kind of like the tipping stone of him going to the cops saying that they raped him. But he didn't go to the cops. He was staying at some boarding home, and he went to the boarding home and told them, and they eventually put out a warrant for these guys' arrest, and you didn't have no police report, no none, just took an 11-year-old kid word and ran with it. So when they reached out to me, I went and talked to the family, and I seen how distraught they were, like, man, this is something we would never do. Why would we rape our own cousin? Why would we do this to him? It was no reason for us to do that, man. You know, we're not gay. We we like women and things of that nature. So I like, man, you know, I understand things like that happen. So while all of this going on, the guy that claimed they raped him is in prison. So I sent him a letter and tried to go see him. He didn't want to see me. He was like, man, when I get out, I'll talk to you all. So eventually, a few months ago, he got out. And he reached out to me and said, hey, man, I want to come clean and I want to confess that my cousin didn't rape me. He didn't do nothing to me. It's a story I made up. And once I made it up, the cops just ran with it and told me to say these type of things about the case. And that's what I did. And that's what got my cousin sent to prison for 75 years. His cousin got 75 years and been locked up on that case for like 24 years now. So his recantation, plus we're going to give him a polygraph test, and if he passes it, we got good action of getting this guy out of prison. Okay, so that's where you are. That's the break is you, you've got him set up to take a polygraph, and if, it, if he yeah, passes, then this guy could actually get out? Yeah, a lot of people wow. don't come back and recant their stories, but this guy came back and recanted. I met with him, I recorded the conversation, and I believe what he said, and now... We're going to take him a polygraph test, and if he passed that, his cousin could be a free guy, you know, within months or maybe a year or so. Just all depends on how fast, you know, people rule on it. Wow. Talk about changing lives, Christopher. That's that's really intense. Um, yeah, well, it is. Yeah, it is. So for our for our listeners who don't know still much about really what you do here, paint the picture for us, Christopher, of how you do the work that you do. So I know, you know, you've got a group of, of, of people there within the House of Renewed Hope that you work with, but help us understand what you're doing to try to help people. How do you find your case? You, know, you reach out, you get cases on your on your docket, you review them, and then what are you doing? What are you actually doing to help? 
Well, we do. Once we find a case or two that we really like and we are really intrigued and got our attention, we start, you know, labeling cases of what's our next move. So basically it'd be we got to talk to all the witnesses. We want to get police reports. We want to talk to some cops. If they're, if, if they're willing to talk, we'd like to talk to the lawyer that represented him, maybe even a prosecutor that prosecuted the case. Because in order to get somebody freed, you got to take all those steps. And those are the baby steps that lead to the big thing, which is getting somebody out of prison. So once we sit around and discuss the case, it's about putting in that footwork. Now we foot soldiers. We go knocking on doors. We make phone calls. We go visit people in prison. And if one, if, if somebody in on the same case that's in prison, we go visit them too. So, you know, we travel all around Texas and do this, and we got a good reputation of, you know, finishing our work. We don't leave no, you know, rocks unturned or no stones unturned. It's just once we get on a mission, we want to accomplish that mission so we can move on to the next one. And, and Christopher, I, I just noted something. Do you, can you only work within Texas or can you work in other states as well? No, we can work, we can work in other states because we have took a case that was in New York, which was Max so far, the case was here in Texas, but we worked with his lawyers also in New York and assisted them. So, and we, and our attorneys that worked with us is, are free to work in the world, you know, over the United States. So once we partnered up with them, it's like we can go and investigate a case anywhere as long as we deal with them and make sure we're doing right about the legal system we find. Okay. Um, and since you've, since you've been, um, Working as you are, how many people have you gotten out of prison? Well, I, it, it, so you see, last year was our first person we got out of prison. Man, um, his name was Isaiah Hill. He did 41 years. And it was so, it, you, where you seen the film at the closing, when you seen that guy getting out of prison. Yeah. And when he rode in the back seat and he was looking out that window and just started crying. Yeah. Just Seeing something like that is the reason why we work the way we work, because we want to see that joy and that happiness in everybody's face case we work on, but we know our case is not going to be successful. But if we can get one out of a thousand, we done did a blessing for somebody. And just seeing how he cried the day he got out of prison after 41 years, that's why we work as hard as we work to see people just like him go free. How many, um, do you have any idea of uh, how many cases you're working on now or how many or at least are on, you've got in your on your radar? Well, we have, uh, I see four that we're working on right now. A couple look pretty, a couple look strong. And the other two, we're just really waiting on some more feedback on them. But we have four active cases right now that looks pretty good. Um, well, let's go back to Isaiah really quick, the man that spent 41 years in, in, in prison. Uh, one of the things that I really got from your documentary is just how important it is to be able to help these people once they get out. They don't have any, any after 41 years in the prison, how do they know how to mm-hmm. navigate the world? So would you say a little bit right. about what you did to help him get get on his way? Uh, it, it was kind of hard with him because, you know, which he couldn't read, uh, he couldn't spell, he could barely write. So it was like, 
kind of taking a baby around, you know, for the first time and letting them get some sights of things or whatever. So we pretty much had to do everything for him. We had to, had to micromanage him. So we had to take him get birth certificate, driving license, take his ID, set up him some insurance and health care and um, um, disability and everything. So it was a challenge, but it gave us that challenge where we were like, if we can get somebody out, we got to go through this process one time to just to see how it feels to get familiar with the people that's in the system that is going to lend you a helping hand. And when they found out who we were and what we was doing trying to help people, they made it just that much easier for us to get everything this guy needed, and it didn't take us no time because everybody was willing to work with us. Wow, that is such a profound thought, Christopher, just to think about what it really takes to ha- take somebody from a completely different world, that being prison, to the free world, and the huge chasm in between that that you have to cross. So hats off to you, Christopher. I appreciate it. Thank you. And it's time for a short break already. I'm Elise Cortez, your host. We've been on the air with Christopher Scott, who spent 13 years in prison for a murder he did not commit, having landed there as the result of a faulty eyewitness identification. He was exonerated in 2009 based on another man's detailed confession. After his release, Christopher founded the House of Renewed Hope, which is a nonprofit organization that is focused on investigating other wrongful conviction cases. After the break, we'll talk more about the work that he's doing. Stay with us. We're on Facebook, along with some of the greatest minds of the world, and that includes you. Visit us on Facebook at Voice America Empowerment. Elise Cortez is a speaker and engagement and development catalyst. She designs and delivers professional development, leadership, and engagement workshops and can bring her expertise to your organization. She will help ignite meaningful development within your workforce that will increase employee engagement, performance, and retention. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at www.elisecortez.com. She would welcome the opportunity to help get your employees working on purpose. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. We're on Facebook along with some of the greatest minds of the world, and that includes you. Visit us on Facebook at Voice America Empowerment. This is Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez. To reach our program today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us and welcome back to Working on Purpose. If you're just tuning in, my guest is Christopher Scott, who spent 13 years in prison for a murder he did not commit. He has since founded House of Renewed Hope, a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping other wrongful conviction cases. In addition to advocating for reform of the Texas criminal justice system, he is also involved in movie projects, the latest of which is True Conviction, his documentary that details his own life and how he got into prison and the work he's doing through the House of Renewed Hope. He joins today from Dallas, Texas. I'm your host, Elise Cortez. 
So Christopher, for this last little bit that we have together, I, I'd love to hear a bit more about the work that you're doing through the House of Renewed Hope. Um, and I, I want to also talk to a little bit, we mentioned on the break and also in your, uh, I think in your documentary about an exoneree that passed while well, in prison. Maybe let's start with that. Can we tell us about that story? Well, Billy, he wasn't in prison. He did actually did 20 years for a crime he didn't commit. And once we get out, sometimes, you know, being in prison, you have to get bad and you have to go bad. And Billy found out he had cancer. And after he died, you know, he's pretty much all the compensation money goes away because it's nothing set up for who we can leave our money to. So now his wife is stuck with high medical bills, over $100,000 worth of medical bills, and home, you know, and mortgages and things of that nature, which is not right. So I think we should, you know, try to address the um, legislation in the next couple of years to try to make it better uh, insurance for men that was falsely in prison because before we went to prison, we wasn't in this shape. And when we went to prison and when we came out, we had a lot of different illness that was wrong with us, and it wasn't our fault. We just wasn't getting the right medical attention in prison that we needed or desired. So that's one of the things I really want to do next uh, legislation is go down there and talk to them about better insurance for the exonerees. Okay, so let's go ahead and talk about that then. So I know that that some of the things that you you have been working on is in terms of criminal reform, and I, I and I I want to you to say a, a few of the things that you're focused on. I, I was amazed at the levels of conversations that you're having with Christopher. You're having you're having mm-hmm. with people. So would you say a bit about what is it you're really trying to do there, and maybe some of the conversations you've you've already had? We have a lot of time when we go to uh, talk to legislation and state representatives, state senators. It's about health care. Because health care is a big issue right now. And, you know, our health care bill is not even passed yet. So, you know, hopefully it get done and it be where, you know, we don't have to pay as much as the, they said we have to pay. Because everybody don't have money to afford that kind of insurance. And a lot of the people, like we say, the legislation people we deal with, we, we are focused on our health care. And we are focused on criminal reform, and we deal with it like we say. We deal with Senator Huffman out of Houston. We deal with um, Senator Ellis out of Houston. We deal with State Representative and Shea out of, out of Dallas. So we talk to the right people, and the right people are in a position. It's just hard to get laws and bills passed in Austin, but that's something we, you know, we put on our top agenda of going down to trying to get better health care for people that can't afford it and expensive for exonerees because a lot of times when you sign up insurance and you got a pre-existence illness, a lot of people don't like to give you insurance, and if they do, the insurance is so high that a lot of times you can't afford it. So true, and I, I didn't realize that... Um that Billy's bill was over a hundred thousand dollars. I didn't know that. That and that his his wife is now having to d- address that. I can't imagine what that the burden that that must be. I I just can't imagine mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. One of the other things that you told me about that you were that you were focused on is trying to find a way to hold prosecutors to be accountable for wrongful convictions. Have you made any mm-hmm. headway there, or? I, I don't. I think you know it's it's getting there slowly, but hopefully for sure. It gets there because majority of the times when prosecutors have cases, 
in front of them. They know if the dots are dotted and the T's are crossed. They know it. So when you have a case that you really pretty much can't prove dealing with your indictment, because your indictment is, is willingly, intentionally, and knowingly caused a harm or robbery or whatever the case may be, a lot of times they can't prove that. And they still go on with that conviction. So it has to be some kind of check and balances dealing with that system, and it has to be they has to be held accountable because if, if they would do their jobs properly and not try to convict everybody to the fullest, knowing that you know this conviction don't feel right, but since it's just right for me to do, I'm gonna just do it anyway. Yeah, those are the prosecutors that we don't need prosecuting any cases. Because they have they have no more ethics about what they're doing. If we dealing with a prosecutor, we want a prosecutor that you feel like you know. If I can't see winning this case legitimately, then I don't want to try to win it by you know uh, putting hiding things under the table and hiding evidence and coercing witnesses. So we need our prosecutors to be held accountable. Hey, if they got to do jail time, do jail time. Let them see how it feel to be in prison. For a crime, you know, when you prosecute somebody and you know they didn't do it and you send them to prison, you're committing a crime. Mm-hmm. So if you're committing a crime that way, you should be held accountable to go to prison. But we have that immunity on, on their behalf, which they need to lift that immunity. Because if you lift that immunity, a lot of them wrongful convictions will stop happening because those individuals don't want to be charged with lying or perjury in a court building where they can go to prison for a case. So I think you lift that immunity, you'll get some act right in our court systems. Mm. It's profound, Christopher. Well, along those lines, one of the other things that you mentioned to me that you were, were addressing or wanting to address, if you could, was the jury selection process. So first, can you say a little bit about what is the process, generally speaking, for those of us who really don't know it very well? And then secondly, how would you like to see it changed? Well, I really don't know how the jury process is. I just know they pick a group of people that don't have records or whatever the case may be, probably middle class to other middle class people, whatever, and get them to come and view people that they don't even know or they trying to judge or whatever the case may be. My thing is this. Serve on a jury for the right reason, not for the wrong reason. If you was called to be on a jury panel, you got picked to be on that jury panel to look, listen for the truth. I always say the truth says shit you free. If you don't agree with what they're doing, it's your duty to stand up and say something about it. Like in my situation, a female got up and told a judge that we used to date. I never seen this lady a day in my life. And I'm like, see, these are the things that we have to stop people from doing, trying to avoid jury panels. Because just your one vote alone can stop mm-hmm. an innocent man or woman from going to prison for the rest of their life or going to the death penalty, getting the death penalty, because it could have happened to me. I had a capital murder case. I could have got the death penalty, but I didn't. Grace of God, she gave me, she spurred my life and gave me a capital life sentence. But a lot of people is not that lucky. So to yeah. the jury people, 
you know, do the right thing and, and be a, a be a good martyr juror and do the right thing. But if you don't believe it, you know, stand your ground and use your own mind, use your own thinking. If it don't sound right to you, then it don't sound right to you. Hmm. I had the privilege of serving on two juries here, Christopher, and in, in, in Dallas since I've been since I lived mm-hmm. here for the last fifteen years. Uh, and, and it was an incredible experience. And, and I did think it was really important to do that service. And I, I, I did. And now, mind you, I was running my own business at the time, and it was easier for me to make that time than maybe it was for others mm-hmm. who had jobs and maybe not as much support. And But but it, it was, I completely agree. It is so important to do the service and to really listen to your, what, what, what your heart and your mind and your gut are telling you. I so, so believe that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of the other things that you also talked to me a little bit about was that you wanted to see if, about addressing was was teaching police not to have tunnel vision when looking at suspects. Can you say more mm-hmm. about that? Well, a lot of times when, you know, cops feel like they have the suspects that they feel like committed this crime, but it's other things that lead them to say, like, maybe it's not because it's the most stuff out here that we haven't over, you know, uncovered. And my whole thing is go through the whole process of this process of elimination. If you feel like it ain't right, and then you got to try to make it right. Because a lot of cops, that's what they had. They have ton of vision, like with my case. They saw two African-American men, got out the car, and they was looking for two African-American men. And once they had us in custody, they didn't look elsewhere. And when you have a whole neighborhood coming to the court building and to the jailhouse saying, those not the two individuals that did it, these are the two individuals that did it, and have informant tell cops who actually committed this crime and have cops come to your trial and say, I know that these two guys supposed to have committed this crime and held up pictures of the guy that actually committed the crime in the courthouse. And then nobody go question these people or even look for these people. They just know we got the two that they say did it, and that's just it. Get away from the tunnel vision because you having tunnel vision is you're not doing your job properly. Because once you feel like you got the right two people, it's more other investigation that needs to be taken care of. And they don't do it. And they so... They so gung-ho about tunnel vision, and a lot of cops have it. Majority of the cops have it because they don't want to work hard. They don't want to do the due process of going out there chasing down leads. Sounds like some an opportunity for, for some pretty intense training to me, but... I don't know how else to address that, but because I know for, for the work that we do, Christopher, so much of it has to do with, with you know, how people think and how they feel and mm-hmm. having mm-hmm. filters and, and having limited ways to be able to understand or perceive things and that they're just not aware of. And even helping people become aware of those those filters and how it is that they're viewing things is the first the first step. And I think I, that would be really, mm-hmm. really fascinating work to get to do. See, but what I do now is I've contracted out with four cottages and they have like cadets training and Mm. the day of their graduation I go talk to the cadets and tell them about how to approach people because a lot of cops haven't even been into urban communities to know how to deal with African American men period Mm. 
Mm-hmm. So it's not a thing that they need to be trained on that they don't get trained on because everything is better, better is just having mutual respect for one another. If a cop approach you with respect, you're going to give respect. But if a cop approach you with aggressiveness, sometimes the cop going to get that back at him. You know what I mean? So that's why I go and try to talk to the cadets. Learn how to approach people with respect. Don't let, you know, don't um, do the the stop and frisk. Don't do that because that don't make any sense. Don't do the stop and frisk. Don't uh, stereotype people. Don't Don't racially profile people because if I'm driving in a nice car or whatever the case may be, Oh, he got to be a drug dealer or uh, some, you know, something ain't going on with it. Stop being stereotypical and stop profiling because that's where it all starts from. They profile African-American men of being bad men in general, and it's not like that. Mm-hmm. Speaking of that, in the very short amount of time that we have together here, Christopher, can you just say um, one of the things I loved about watching your documentary was your interaction with your grandson. It is so heartwarming. Um, so can you just say just maybe a couple things? We have only got maybe a minute for you to speak on that. You know, Trey is a, is a, is a kid that needs stability, and I'm here to give it to him. My son is incarcerated. It's my duty to look out for Trey and try to make Trey be the best young man he can be. And hopefully when his dad get out of prison, his dad can pick up where I left off from. But his dad know one thing, that his son is being very well taken care of, and his son is very well respected when it comes to, you know, older people, his elderlies, and his grandparents and his cousin. He's a very, you know, uh, well-respected young man, and he just like having fun and watching Mickey Mouse and being around his pow-pow. And I give him everything he wants. I spoil him because I can spoil my two sons because when they was my grandson age, I was in prison. So now I can live they younger life through my grandson, and that's what I'm doing. Mm, and it's really beautiful to witness, Christopher. Um, and in about 30 seconds, just final words you want to leave, leave with our listeners with regard to the work that you're doing. I'm looking for interns. So if anybody know anybody that's in law school that need intern hours, you know, email has renewed hope, and we'll try to see if we can assist you. And hopefully we can turn some of these young interns to powerful lawyers. Some can be prosecutors, but long as they're the prosecutors, they're doing the right thing. Wow, Christopher. Um, I'll be happy to help you evangelize that request. Happy to do that. And thank you for joining me again on Working on Purpose. It was wonderful to have you as my guest again. Thanks for having me again. Have a blessed one. Thank you. If you want to learn more about Christopher Scott and the work he and his team are doing at House of Renewed Hope, visit their site. It is House of Renewed Hope. We will see you next week. And remember that work is one third of our lives. So let's work on purpose. We hope you've enjoyed this week's program. Be sure to tune in to Working on Purpose, featuring your host, Elise Cortez, every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, find your life's purpose at work.